Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Older adults make up 12% of the U.S. population, but account for 18% of all suicide deaths. One reason the numbers are so high is that older adults, especially men, have a much higher death rate than other groups. Statistics report that one in four older adults are successful in their attempts to take their own lives as compared to one in 200 youths. Today, my guests are Allie Walker, Chair, and Keith Tate, treasurer of the Board of Directors of the National Capital Area Chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They will talk about risk factors, intervention, and prevention strategies for older adults at risk of suicide. They're also going to tell us about available resources to support family members affected by suicide. So welcome, Allie and Keith, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having us, Cheryl. Uh, Thanks so much, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's get started with you, Allie. Explain to us why is suicide a critical concern among older adults? Well, Cheryl, I really appreciate that um, you brought this topic to us and that we're talking about it today because it is absolutely a critical concern among older adults. Um, Suicide rates in 2019 overall nationally trended down for the first time in more than 20 years. But unfortunately, we actually saw an increase among older adults And people over the age of 85 have the highest rate of suicide of any age group. Uh, And while we lost more than 47,000 Americans to suicide in 2019, 19% of those were accounted for by people over the age of 65. There tends to be this misconception that depression is typical part of aging. And in fact, that's not true at all. And what we've seen is that older people are less likely to be diagnosed and treated for mental health conditions like depression. So it's really important that people recognize this is not just a problem that affects older adults, but a significant one that disproportionately is impacting them. Well, that's helpful to kind of set the stage then. And I want to get into then specifically what I mentioned during the introduction. So Keith, help us on this. Why are suicide rates the highest among older men? And we'll start with that. And then after that, is there another group of older adults that has, say, the second highest rate of suicide? Help us understand that. Yeah, great question, Cheryl. Um, So, you know, when we look at uh, suicide rates uh, among older men, um, the suicide rate in 2019 was approximately 13.93 per 100,000. However, among those over the age of 65, the rate was higher 
than the average at 16.98. And among men in that age group was significantly higher at a rate of 32.51. So there's not one specific thing that we can look at to say um, uh, this is what is attributing to the highest uh, rate among older men. But uh, when we look at certain factors like the recent death of a loved one, physical illness, um, perceived poor health, social isolation and loneliness, those type of things all go into, um, you know, why we see uh, those high rates. As I was preparing these questions, I also was wondering if you could verify if greater access may be too means for uh, possible suicide? It, might that be a factor, Keith? Of course, yeah. So that's one of the things that we even look at, um, regardless of the age demographic, but the access or ease of access to lethal means is always going to increase uh, the possibility um, for the potential uh, uh, high rates for a suicide. Keith, the other thing that I did also mention during the introduction, so I wanted to hear from you as to why the attempts of suicide amongst older adults are more likely to result in death as opposed to younger persons. Why does that happen? Again, I think it kind of goes back to, um, you know, the access to lethal means. Um, alcohol and substance abuse plays a diminishing role in later life suicides compared to younger suicides. Um, you know, one of the leading causes of suicide among the elderly is depression, which is often undiagnosed and untreated. And then, of course, we kind of go back to, uh, you know, what we kind of talked about. Um, as you kind of get older, you're going to start to see, um, you know, more uh, deaths of loved ones, uh, more social isolation and more loneliness. Um, so, you know, um, although older adults attempt suicide less often than those in other age groups, they have a higher completion rate. For all ages combined, there is estimated one suicide for every 25 attempted suicides. Among the young, which is ages 15 to 24, there is estimated one suicide for every 100 to 200 attempts. Um, but over the age of 65, there is one estimated suicide for every four attempted suicides. I'm also wondering, Keith, if there is an attempt at suicide for an older adult, if they're more likely to be living alone, might the suicide be more successful in so far as a family member or a caregiver or even a neighbor finding them uh, in their home? Is, is that also a factor? Of course. Um, people who die by suicide were less likely to be married, have children, or be involved in religious practice. Um, association between low social integration and suicide uh, remains significant after controlling for mental disorders and employment status. So, you know, we kind of take all of that together. And as you kind of stated, it's going to uh, increase the uh, possibility uh, for higher uh, rates. Allie, amongst older adults, there may be a situation of cognitive impairment. Might that condition precipitate suicide? Uh, yeah, so actually, great question. Um, cognitive impairment is associated with suicidal ideation and suicidal behavior. We know um, from research that neurocognitive impairment does increase one's risk for suicide. Um, for example, uh, you know, a lot of people, I think, tend to think of things like Alzheimer's and depression when they think about cognitive impairment, and certainly those disorders do 
lead to that kind of impairment also are associated with higher rates of suicidal behavior. But on top of that, even major depressive episodes themselves cause cognitive dysfunction. And we know that depression is highly associated with risk for suicide. Okay. And in addition, I was wondering if you could speak to the COVID-19 pandemic and all that has occurred and, and both of you already have talked about social isolation and uh, other factors that have been certainly much more present during the last year and a half, year and three quarters, I guess. Have you seen that that has affected the risk of suicide among older adults also? Yeah, this is a question that we've been getting a lot and certainly a natural one to be wondering about. Um what the CDC has been doing is trying to track real-time data in terms of how the COVID-19 pandemic has been impacting mental health in our country. And so, so far, we don't have any data that suicide deaths have increased at all. Um, but what we do have is information that signals a higher level of distress across the board. Um, they've been conducting something called household pulse surveys, which are really brief 20-minute surveys asking about symptoms of mental health conditions, not necessarily diagnoses, but the experiences of anxiety and depressive symptoms. Um, and since that launched in April 2020, we've seen that you know, there has been a significant increase in distress. And when they break it down by age group, the, the distress actually seems to be higher among younger adults in the age group of 18 to 29. But certainly older adults are not, you know, are not uh, any less prone to the to level of distress that people are experiencing with, with all of the changes we've been going through. I guess COVID-19 is certainly uh, an external factor. And I want to come back to you, Keith, about other uh, possible life events. Uh, could be stressful life events or just stress generally, such as family discord or divorce or death. Have you seen that for older adults, these are important risk factors for suicide? Of course. Um, these are all risk factors that you mentioned. Um, but, you know, the important thing to remember is that simply having risk factors does not guarantee that a person will attempt suicide. However, it alerts us to those who may be at an increased uh, risk, increase the opportunity to offer support and mitigate that risk. Um, anxiety disorders, um, you know, play a consistent role as well, since they are involved in, you know, one of every six adult older adult uh, suicide deaths. Older people experience several situations of social stress and adverse social experience, such as retirement, uh, widowing, or a lack of new intimate relationships. Since you both have been giving important statistics about older adults, if the exposure to another person's suicide, whether it's a friend or a, a neighbor or even someone they knew in their faith community or what, might that uh, awareness or exposure to that person's suicide also uh, be a risk factor uh, insofar as the possibility of someone considering suicide themselves? Great question, Cheryl. Um, exposure to another person's suicide has the potential to increase suicide risk, particularly if the individual was personally affected by the suicide loss or was exposed to unsafe messaging around the suicide death. Uh, we refer to the, uh, this latter concept as contagion or the phenomenon of increased suicide attempts in response to a suicide exposure. 
We know from research that there are safe ways to talk publicly about suicide to avoid contagion. And in addition, we also know that positive messaging uh, increases uh, help seeking, decreases stigma, and directs people to resources as a protective effect. So I believe what you're saying is, is that it's really important to search out uh, those people who are aware of what's happened to a friend or neighbor or family member and to help that person as soon as possible. Of course. Yeah. And just be there for them. Um, you know, sometimes people just want, want to talk and just have somebody to be there to listen. Okay. And we're going to be talking more about how to recognize symptoms a little bit later, but I think it's really good that we're covering all possibilities. And and so I want to get back to you, Allie. How about an older adult who has previously attempted suicide or has a family history of suicide? What are the the possibilities that that individual uh, might be more likely to die by suicide? Yeah, um, having a personal or family history of suicide or suicidal behavior like an attempt certainly does increase a person's risk. Um, Having a prior suicide attempt is one of the bigger red flags that we watch for. But I also want to point out something important, which is that just because somebody has made an attempt does not mean that they will eventually go on to die by suicide. And in fact, most people who survive a suicide attempt do not go on to die by suicide. Why is that? Well, I think a lot of that is because if you survive a suicide attempt, um, hopefully that serves as an opportunity to provide interventions and support to that person to treat whatever underlying mental health condition might have led to this crisis moment. Um, So, you know, there's also a lot of research kind of looking at people who have made suicide attempts and their feelings towards their attempt. And a lot of people will tell you that they regret having made made that action because suicide attempts happen in a moment of crisis when people develop what we talk about as kind of this tunnel vision. They're in so much distress that they are having a difficult time weighing the pros and cons of a decision. And that leads to this crisis moment where they're um, choosing a behavior that really isn't the best solution to what is underlying all of the distress that caused their crisis. So I think there are a lot of reasons behind it. I would probably focus primarily on the fact that it's when you survive a suicide attempt, there's an opportunity now to address the problems that led you to that moment and get the help that really could have prevented it. And to that point, Keith, are there particular behaviors that an older adult may have that could signal a a suicide risk. What should people be watching for, family members be watching for in terms of behaviors that might signal an increased possibility of someone taking their life? Talk about that, Keith. Of course. Yeah. So, you know, I think the easiest way to look at it is um, anytime you you start to see significant changes um, in a person's, you know, usual behaviors should definitely raise a red flag and try to uh, start the get the conversation started. Um, this could look like withdrawing from social interaction, giving away personal belongings, uh, increasing in risky behaviors, changes in sleep pattern, or uh, irritability. Uh, more important than any single behavior is the recognition that someone's usual behavior has changed. 
And talk more about that. I mean, you gave a few examples, uh, so they don't go out as much, or what What have you seen in terms of some of the people that, you know, you get this information from as to what they're doing and how that's different than their usual uh, lifestyle? Of course. And I, I think the person that is closest to that individual um, is going to know uh, best because everybody's going to be different in their normal tendencies. Um, but just for an example, you know, if someone is um, isolating themselves, you know, not answering the phone, you know, um, not communicating, staying in the house, doesn't want to go out, anything like that. Um, again, that that should be a cause for concern and should raise a red flag, especially if that person um, is typically more outgoing, likes to be sociable, um, and then they just start to kind of isolate themselves. Um, you know, again, that would definitely be something that uh, should raise a red flag to anybody to at least start that conversation. And I want to just begin to get into prevention. And I'm going to ask you because you're talking about it right now. If a family member or a friend or a caregiver is noticing that, uh, should they say anything to the person and kind of, as we say, call them on it? Or should they just kind of keep it to themselves? What, What kind of reaction would be appropriate for observing these kinds of behaviors? I think one of the biggest misconceptions that we see is that if you ask somebody directly if they are thinking about suicide, then that in turn is going to cause that person to actually go forward with that. And that's just not the case. Research has shown that if you ask that person directly, um, you know, you're going to be able to have a a real conversation with them um, and be able to try to assist them with getting help. So I would say, you know, first and foremost, have that conversation. Don't be afraid to ask them specific questions. Um, and just let them know that you, you know, are there to help them any way that you can. And, you know, you're in this together. Um, and, you know, that way you're able to kind of assist them with getting uh, the, you know, professional uh, help that they need. And Allie, I'm, I was going to ask you that same question about the actions that people should take. I, I think when this kind of a serious uh, situation Uh, family members or friends or relatives or whoever are kind of reluctant to be more uh, forthright about talking with the person. And so I wanted to get back to you also as to what actions should they take and also at the same time what what they should avoid doing, what what members, family members and friends and relatives should avoid doing. This is something that people struggle with all the time. Um, And in fact, it's one of the reasons that we focus so heavily on public education at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, because people by and large have said in studies that if they knew somebody was thinking of suicide, they would want to do something. So it's never a lack of wanting to help another person, but there's a discomfort in talking about suicide with people who might be contemplating that action. And as Keith said, really importantly, that stigma, that misconception, that asking about suicide might plant the idea in someone's head when in fact we know that asking about suicide is actually a protective factor. Just like we talked about the risk factors that increase your risk for suicide, there are protective factors and things like social connectedness and being directly asked, do reduce your risk for suicide. So if there's somebody in your life that you're concerned about, you're noticing that their behavior has changed, right? We talked about withdrawing, but maybe also they're getting really 
angry or irritable over things that seem atypical for how they would normally respond to a situation. If if that red flag is coming up in your mind, you need to ask that person what's going on. And there are a lot of good resources to kind of help you start that conversation. First and foremost, you can go to our website at AFSP.org. And there's a ton of information about how to support somebody who might be thinking about suicide. You can go to our personal chapter website, which you can find from the national uh, page, or you can search AFSP.org slash NCAC and sign up for some of our educational programs to learn a little bit more about what this looks like. And then something that I love that was actually created as a a PSA campaign for younger people, but I find really endearing and wonderful kind of for all ages is something called the Seize the Awkward campaign. You just go to seizetheawkward.com. And it's a really great public campaign talking about the different conversation starters that you can use to ask somebody how they're doing. Um, And really the important thing is that this is a private kind of conversation, not something that you're gonna talk about in public. You wanna take the person aside you can kind of start softly by saying, hey, I've noticed these changes and I'm really worried about you and work up to the point of asking directly. Sometimes when people are in this kind of state, they think about suicide. Is that something that you've been dealing with? And that really opens the door, gives that person an opportunity to say, yes, thank you so much. I'm so glad somebody finally asked me Because it can be really scary for somebody who's thinking about suicide, first of all, to be having those thoughts, but then to make it real by telling another person. So I think having a caring conversation is so important. And if you find yourself in a situation where you're really concerned about this person's safety, um, 911 is the easiest way to get access to crisis services if you think that you or that person are in immediate danger. But outside of 911, there are a number of resources that are dedicated specifically to mental health crises. There's something called the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which you can call at any hour, any day, all year long. And that number, which I tell everyone, please just save it in your phone, is 1-800-273-8255. You can also text, if you're a texter, you can text to 741741. But this is an awesome resource because these people are specifically trained in supporting someone during a suicide crisis. And they can help not only the person in crisis, but you if you're the caller wanting to help your loved one or your friend and you're not really sure what the right next step is. They can give you some really helpful guidance and also help you navigate the local resources. Thank you for all of those good resources, and we're going to have you say those again in the second half. But one quick question before we take a a break. In the initial interaction with somebody who might be thinking about taking their life, is there anything you should avoid doing or saying uh, that would really just... I don't know, set them off or, or maybe increase the likelihood. Just want to make sure not only all the good things that you've said in terms of asking how they're feeling, but certain things that you shouldn't say or do. Yeah, you know, um, I think probably one of the biggest things to avoid is trying to offer solutions. Um, I think a lot of times we have this tendency, and it's very well-meaning, to try to offer, you know, well, hey, look on the bright side, at least you have X, Y, and Z. Or, well, it's not so bad, 
And those are our attempts at trying to make the other person feel better, but in fact, it makes them feel worse. Really, your role in a conversation like this is to just provide support and a listening ear. And some problems are not that easily solved. So it's better to avoid that that inclination to offer solutions and looking on the bright side and instead just allow that person to tell you how they're feeling, why they're experiencing it, if they have certain things that they're specifically worried about, and then just say, thank you for telling me. Okay. Well, this is a good time to stop because uh, and take a break because we're going to talk more about assessing risk of suicide and other factors and prevention in the second half. But in case you tuned in late, uh, we're talking with Allie Walker, who is the chair, and Keith Tate, the treasurer of the board of directors of the National Capital Area Chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And you are listening to WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Welcome back. We're having a very important discussion today about suicide prevention with Allie Walker, who is the chair, and Keith Tate, the treasurer of the board of directors of the National Capital Area Chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And before the break, we learned a lot about risk factors and behaviors that might be um, uh, people, family members might uh, notice uh, with their loved ones. I wanted to just check with you, Keith, one more thing. Might there be any other warning signs that uh, are obvious, uh, say, at some an older adult's home or that might be different and could also have some indication that the, the person might be considering suicide? What would you tell us? Yeah, of course. So, you know, again, we kind of go back to if you see any uh, significant changes in a person's uh, behavior. So, for instance, if, you know, that individual is typically or normally very clean or they keep their house very clean and you start to notice that, uh, you know, they're not, um, you know, they're not cutting the grass or they're not doing laundry, they're not keeping up with their personal hygiene, um, you know, things like that can also, you know, be um, indicators that, you know, a conversation needs to be had. And Cheryl, if, if I could add something too to what Keith is talking about, um, when we look at warning signs, one of the things we talk about a lot with our public education is classifying warning signs into talk, behavior, and mood. Um, and looking at these three buckets, um, you know, we're talking a lot about behavior and mood, and this, you know, that irritability that we talked about, and the kind of withdrawn, quiet, depressed affect. Um, but one thing that we've breezed over a little bit that I wanted to highlight too is the talk piece of this. 
people who are thinking about suicide actually often talk about it. Um, In fact, Anthony Bourdain, if you're familiar, died by suicide uh, a few years ago, and he was actually recorded on national television talking about taking his own life more than 29 times. So the other thing that I wanted to highlight here is in addition to, you know, changes in hygiene and withdrawn behavior um, and, and those really big warning signs, there's also the listening piece. What are people saying? What are they talking about? And sometimes people talk about this in a way that kind of gives the impression that maybe they're just joking or they're not really serious. But, you know, I kind of tell everybody if the word suicide comes out of somebody's mouth or an allusion to it, I always take that opportunity to stop and ask if they really mean what they said. Um, because sometimes people don't really know how to bring it up in a serious way. And and that's really them asking for you to step in and offer your help. Yeah. And just to piggyback off of that, um, you know, when we speak about talking um, and, you know, what they're saying and kind of paying attention, especially in the uh, aging community, um, talking about feeling worthless or hopeless or feeling like they're a burden or like others would be, you know, quote unquote, better off without them are common indicators of suicidal thoughts or behavior that, um, you know, people should definitely look out for as well. All of those are really, really important factors to be watching for. And following up on what you both are saying, um, and I'll direct this question to Allie, is it possible to assess the risk of suicide in an older adult? And are are there actual screening options that are available? What what do we need to know? Yeah, so, you know, you're actually touching on a really important uh, question that, um, you know, Outside of just what a layperson is looking to understand in the medical community and in our research community, assessing suicide risk is one of the biggest areas of focus. How do we anticipate who might be thinking about suicide and who might take action on those thoughts? And so, you know, it kind of depends a little bit on the audience that we're talking to in terms of what their role is in assessing risk. So what I would tell a family member or a friend, a person who is not a behavioral health specialist or really experienced in assessing risk, I think your role is primarily to focus on the things that we've talked about so far, understanding what kinds of things increase a person's risk for potentially thinking about or taking action on suicidal ideation. If you are talking about within the medical community, you know, the primary care doctor or the psychologist or psychiatrist, there are um, research validated tools that we can use to help assess somebody's suicide risk. And it really starts with the basic screening of people who might have an underlying mental health condition and who may be experiencing thoughts about suicide. And so one of the most common that you'll probably hear about is the PHQ-9. And it's a short questionnaire that's asking people about different kinds of symptoms. And then it actually specifically asks about suicidal ideation. And there are other validated tools similar to this. There's the ask questionnaire, which is actually even shorter. Um, So on the medical side of things, there are a number of screening tools. I think what can be challenging even uh, even in the medical community is what do you do with this information in terms of describing how high the risk is that somebody might make an attempt for suicide? And, and that's kind of a constantly evolving um, 
thing that they're looking at in, in research is trying to understand and hone in on how do we categorize more objectively who's at low risk, at intermediate risk, at high risk, and what does that mean? And I think the things that we focus on the most as being really big red flags that somebody is at higher risk than other people for suicide death is things like having a plan. So not just having what we call passive ideation, where you're having thoughts about death or having thoughts about taking your life, but you haven't gotten to a phase yet of um, really actively working towards uh, a plan. Um, Once somebody is in that phase of planning what that suicide might, how it might occur, um, and maybe they're going out and purchasing items or, you know, setting the stage to take their life. That's when we're really, really concerned. So getting back to kind of my earlier point, I think that assessing risk for suicide is really nuanced. And so the role for assessing risk among um, regular community members and family members and friends is to recognize the warning signs and to seek out professional support. And on the professional side of things, we're using these research validated tools to try to help stratify risk. And I was just thinking about how when older adults have their wellness visit with their primary care physician, if there was some sense of the possibility of a, a risk of suicide, what would, say, a primary care physician do with that information? I, I think what you just said is really important, so I'd be interested to know. Yeah, you know, I'm actually... Many people may not realize this, but the the largest prescriber for psychotropic medications actually comes out of primary care. Um, 60% of medications, uh, psychiatric medications are prescribed by primary care practitioners. So, you know, one of the challenges that we have is we have a mental health care system that's a bit broken and access to care, meaning the ability to actually get care, make appointments, have payments covered for psychiatric services is a challenge kind of across the country. And in certain areas like rural areas, more than urban. So primary care providers have a really important role in preventing suicide. And they're very qualified and knowledgeable about um, treating the underlying uh, depressive symptoms, right? Again, primary care providers are well-practiced in prescribing medications to help address these mood disorders. Um, So that's really, that's really some of the role of primary care is actually the intervention piece, not just assessing risk, but then being able to provide interventions like starting medication. One of the things that we talk about, um, and there's actually, um, there are apps on your phone, and I'm I apologize, I'm blanking on the name of the app right now, but there's something we talk about called a safety plan. And this is something that a primary care provider can help guide a patient through, but a person's family member can also help them in this process. A safety plan is essentially um, the practice of identifying you know, when you might be getting to a point of crisis and what kinds of steps you can take to kind of get a step back and de-escalate. And so it kind of walks you through. It's very nice. It kind of just walks you through, okay, what are the things I typically experience when I'm starting to get really um, distressed? What, what does that feel like? What does that look like? And then what are some activities that I can do just by myself that might help mediate some of these emotions and kind of help me relax? So for some people, that's exercise. For other people, that's listening to music 
or going on a walk. If working on these things kind of independently is not helping, who are people that I know and love who are going to support me that I can reach out to? And then, you know, you can enter in this app, you can even just enter the phone number and call directly out of the app. Um, And if, you know, say the family or friends are not available when you try to reach them, or perhaps uh, it's just kind of gotten to a point where you really need more help than what they're able to offer in that moment, then you start to call the medical professionals in your life. And so you can call your primary care doctor, or if you're seeing a a psychologist or a psychiatrist, you call their office. And if it's really bad, you call the crisis line that we talked about before, that 1-800-273-8255 number. Because you were talking about, uh, you know, the the medical profession earlier, I also wanted to find out, Allie, does Medicare uh, cover suicide risk assessment uh, tools and 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 related mental health services because this is obviously very important. And what about other insurance plans? Of course, we have older adults who are not uh, on Medicare. So, can you give us some information about the insurance coverage of these kinds of services? There is a lot to unpack when it comes to talking about mental health care and in the context of what insurance plans cover. Um, So I'll kind of try to highlight the big take home points and feel free to ask me clarifying questions and I'll do my best to answer them. Um, Back in 2008, there was a just to kind of give some background, there was this bill that was passed called the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. And that really kind of set the stage for this expectation of what we now talk about quite often, which is mental health parity. And mental health parity is the um, requirement, the legal requirement, that insurance companies provide the same kind of coverage that they provide for medical and surgical services, and that the, the barriers should not be any higher for mental health services than they are for the physical and surgical equivalents. Um, and that, that concept was really expanded back in 2010 when the Affordable Care Act was passed, um, again, requiring that um, insurance plans cover behavioral health services that are no more restrictive than medical and surgical coverage. Now, all of that sounds really well and good. The challenge, of course, is that unfortunately in practice, we're really not achieving true health parity. When you talk about Medicare, um, people who are on Medicare uh, do have a number of mental health services that are covered by their insurance. Um, You can actually go to Medicare.gov to review all of the different types of coverage that Medicare provides for their beneficiaries. And so when you go on there, you're going to see a huge list of items that they cover related to mental health kind of across the spectrum. Um, So in Part B of Medicare, you're going to have coverage for one annual free depression screening. When we're talking about this risk assessment um, and screening tools, that's what that's covering is one annual visit to screen specifically for depression. They cover outpatient um, therapies, both individual and group therapy, uh, kind of in specific contexts, it covers things like family therapy, if it kind of contributes back to what the individual's distress is coming from, medication management, um, psychiatric testing and evaluation, and partial hospitalization, which is um, where you're kind of spending long days uh, participating in intensive care, but then going home and sleeping in your own bed. Um and then, you know, other parts of Medicare cover inpatient hospitalizations 
uh, for psychiatric care. Uh, but I want to kind of point out some of the gaps. Um, one, the annual screening that we're talking about with Medicare, it it's kind of uh, strict in its requirement. It has to be delivered by a primary care practitioner in the office setting, and it can only take, I think, 15 minutes to conduct. So there are some restrictions on the coverage here that are a little bit hard to see until you're looking, kind of reading between the lines. Um, the other thing is when we talked again about mental health parity, meaning that your coverage for mental health care is no more restrictive than that of medical and surgical, if you look at inpatient hospitalization coverage for Medicare for mental health hospitalizations, there is a lifetime limit of 190 days. Um, if you're looking at medical and surgical hospitalizations, that's not really true. There are 90-day um, limits per um, benefit period, but those will reset after you've been out of the hospital for 60 days. So you have the potential to have a lot more hospitalization coverage for medical and surgical complaints than you would for psychiatric care. Um, that's kind of the, the overview, I think, of, of big things to be aware of with Medicare. And I would just say, you know, every insurance plan's a bit different, and I'm not an expert in insurance coverage, but across the commercial plans, this is a, a constant problem as well. And um, I think this is, you know, something that people have to be really aware of um, if they're not already, is that there are going to be potential for insurance barriers. And one of the things that we're seeing that's an important consequence is that the nuances in coverage are also having an impact on the behavior of mental health professionals and whether or not they accept insurance at all. Um, Medicare, along with all of the commercial insurance plans, reimburses mental health specialists and their care at a lower reimbursement rate than they would for, you know, say, your primary care doctor, for example. And so for a number of reasons, uh, you know, one of them being financial, uh, psychiatrists are one of the less likely uh, physician specialties to accept insurance. The other reason is because there is a lack of um, providers, there's just a national shortage of psychiatrists, uh, they can get away with charging much higher rates for patients than a primary care physician. So um, a lot of folks don't even take insurance and then you're paying, you know, you're paying high, um, high rates for each appointment that you go to see the provider. Um, so all of that to say, you know, Fortunately, Medicare and a number of other commercial plans do have basic coverage. And when you look at it at the kind of on the surface level, it seems to be somewhat close in, in barriers. You know, your co-pays are not going to be much higher or anything like that. Um, but when you kind of get into the weeds, there are some challenges in how insurance companies and Medicare are behaving towards paying for these services and how that's impacting patients. And actually, um, you know, just to kind of tack this on, this is another issue that um, AFSP and a number of other um, advocacy organizations are focusing on in addressing at a state and a federal level policy changes to improve access to care for patients. Very important. That's that's very helpful. Thank you, Allie, and uh, I appreciate that. So I want to get back to resources that are available for older adults who are having suicidal thoughts. Keith, help us on that and, and talk a little bit about how these services help uh, persons in crisis. 
Of course. So I think, uh, you know, um, initially, when we look at resources um, that are available for older adults, if you, um, you know, have somebody or you know somebody that, you know, is struggling, uh, the best thing you can do is offer them support, encourage them um, to seek help, um, help schedule a doctor's appointment, go with them to their appointments. If you are imminently concerned, make sure that you don't leave the per person, you stay with them. Um, avoid trying to offer solutions or upsides. Um, these, you know, while they are well-intentioned actions, uh, they disregard the person's feelings and do more harm than good. Now, when a person is in crisis, um, there are a number of ways that you can get help. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, or you can text 741-741. In uh, July of 2022, um, this number will become much easier to remember because we will be transitioning uh, into a three-digit number, which is 988, and uh, the mental health emergency line equivalent to 911 for physical health emergencies. You can also call 911. And our, in our region, we are fortunate to have mobile crisis units that can be dispatched specifically to offer support and intervention for those experiencing a mental health crisis. Um, and speaking to that specifically, mobile uh, crisis units basically um, have a licensed uh, psychologist or mental health specialist that uh, are assigned to uh, uh, different divisions and they actually go on any mental health uh, related call. Uh, you can find information on these uh, by visiting the website for your local community services board. And Keith, when people call these numbers, are there real folks on the other end? Are they trained then? Do they talk with the person? What, what happens when people dial these or these numbers? Yes, you get a real uh, live person who, you know, they go through intense training um, before, you know, obviously they get on the line to try to assist somebody, especially when they are in time of crisis. Um, but yeah, you, you're not going to get a robot or, you know, um, anything like that. You actually speak to uh, a real person. And then that person will help the caller for next steps as to what to do? Yes. Um, you know, they obviously will be there for them. Um, they will try to, you know, provide any guidance um, and then obviously provide them, you know, uh, resources and kind of next steps or um, what they perceive to be, you know, good next steps for them to follow. I also, Keith, wanted to ask you about suicide protective factors. What, what, what is meant by that, that term? Great question. Uh, protective factor is a characteristic or attribute that reduces the likelihood of attempting or completing suicide. Protective factors are skills, strengths, or resources that help people deal more effectively with stressful events. They enhance resilience and help to counterbalance risk factors. Protective factors can be considered to be either personal or external environmental. Uh, they include coping and problem-solving skills, cultural and religious beliefs that discourage suicide, connections to friends, family, and community support, uh, supportive relationships with care providers, um, and uh, also they promote uh, emotional health, um, recognize and respond to suicide risk, and respond to a suicide attempt or death. When you're talking about these, these are certainly very important, but what if an older adult, say, does not have the capacity or the mental health 
condition is so severe that they aren't able to do all these things. Uh, are family members involved with this or what is the approach? Of course. Yeah. I mean, in, in cases like that, you know, definitely having the family or friends, um, you know, involved in, in this is definitely going to be needed, um, especially if that person cannot, um, you know, act or make decisions on their own. Um, you know, a lot of times when we look at, um, you know, older adults that may be in, uh, you know, uh, senior uh, facilities, um, obviously the people that are there, um, you know, we would like to have them trained to be able to kind of assist because they're going to be with them, you know, more on a daily basis. Um, but, you know, back to your original point, definitely any family or friends that can, uh, you know, try to gain this knowledge um, and make sure that they're looking out uh, and watching for any of the uh, many of the uh, risk factors that we kind of went through uh, will be essential. And Cheryl, if, if I could add something to, to this conversation about protective factors, earlier we were talking about, um, you know, suicide attempts and the, the way that that's a risk factor for um, subsequent suicide attempts or suicide death. And you had asked me the question about, you know, why is it that a person who survives a suicide attempt is less likely to go on to die by suicide? And, and of course, there are a number of things um, that can contribute to that. But I wanted to come back to that in the context of these protective factors. Um, because when we talk about somebody who's thinking about suicide, uh, suicide is very much an ambivalent mindset. There is a part of the person in their mind that really wants to live. And there's another part of them that is in so much emotional pain that they're considering taking their life. Um, and you know, when we're talking about risk factors and protective factors and prevention, what we really are focusing on is supplementing and, and building up the protective factors as much as we can to engage the positive side of that ambivalence, the part of the person that wants to live. And so like Keith is talking about, um, the people working in the senior center that they attend or their family and their friends helping support them with engaging in things that are protective. Community connectedness by itself, that social connectedness is incredibly important. But also, um, you know, Keith mentioned cultural and religious beliefs that discourage suicide. Um, if a person has a really strong faith background and their faith gives them a sense of meaning and purpose in life and also maybe builds in some of that sense of community, helping, you know, this older person attend their church services or participate in faith groups outside of the Sunday service. Um, these are the kinds of things that family, friends can be doing to kind of supplement and, and promote the protective factors. We're getting close to the end of the program, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask a couple of questions about the types of support that are available to family members who are affected by suicide. And I'm going to look to you, Allie, to talk about that. What kind of resources are available to, to help survivors heal? Yeah, so um, when we talk about people who are affected by suicide, I kind of think about two things two things. I think about lost survivors, people who've lost a loved one. And I also think about people who have a loved one who is experiencing um, distress and may have made an attempt or talked about suicide. 
There are a number of resources out there. From the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, we have a number of programs for lost survivors. Again, people who've lost somebody they love to suicide. We have something called the Healing Conversations Program, which connects you with peer support. So the peers that we connect you with are also lost survivors. And these are folks that are probably further out from their loss. They've um, gotten to a place in their grief where they're ready to give back and connect with other people who are earlier in that, that loss period. Um, and that can be really helpful, just connecting with somebody who understands that journey. We also have an annual event in November. This year, it's November 20th, and it's called International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. And that's an opportunity for people to come together for healing and connection after a suicide loss. And for people who have a loved one who's struggling with thoughts of suicide, we have a number of uh, educational programs. They're all free that you can attend to just learn more about the things we're talking about today and what your role could be as a caregiver. Um, and in addition to that, I would just recommend checking out the website for the National Alliance on Mental Illness uh, or NAMI. NAMI has some really great resources for supporting caregivers um, if you are, are caring for somebody who's struggling with mental illness. Keith, did you have anything to add to Allie's comments about resources that are available? Allie pretty much covered it. Um, we did roll out a new program this year, or AFSP did, um, Finding Hope, which is guidance for supporting those at risk. Um, gives people who are caring for someone at risk the strategies and understanding they need to keep their loved ones safe. All right. Well, I want to thank Allie Walker and Keith Tate with the National Capital Area Chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention for joining me today. If you'd like to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com, and there you can access all of the programs, both the radio and the TV show, uh, as well as listen to the podcasts on Apple and Spotify, which, of course, this program will be available on as well. And in fact, if you want to continue to know what Aging Matters is doing, subscribe to the newsletter. That way you get new updates every month about the radio shows as well as some replays of TV episodes, which is what we're doing right now. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and information about that company is at inkmouthmedia.com. So thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs.